Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On August 27th, Paul Rusesabagaina flew from his home in Texas to Dubai. Three days later, he mysteriously appeared in Kigali, Rwanda, where authorities proudly proclaimed his arrest. How he ended up in Kigali from Dubai is very murky. But piecing some details together, Human Rights Watch has concluded that he was the victim of a crime in international law called enforced disappearance. Authorities apparently kidnapped Rusisabagina and have concealed their actions. He would not be the first person whom the Rwandan government has targeted this way, but he is arguably the highest profile. In 1994, Paul Rusesabagaina was the manager of a high-end hotel in Kigali as the genocide unfolded. He used his position to save many lives in acts of heroism that were dramatized by the actor Don Cheadle in the film Hotel Rwanda. In 2006, President George W. Bush conferred on him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Paul Rusesabagaina has been a fierce critic of the post-genocide government of Rwanda. This includes in 2018 posting a YouTube video in which he expresses support for an armed insurgent group that is seeking the overthrow of President Paul Kagame. That insurgent group has conducted attacks resulting in civilian deaths. On the line with me to discuss this situation is Louis Mudge, the Central Africa Director of Human Rights Watch. We kick off discussing what we know about the circumstances surrounding Rusesa Begayina's arrest, including how he ended up in Kigali. We then discuss how this government action against Rusesa Begayina fits into larger patterns of how the regime of Paul Kagame has targeted dissidents abroad including assassinations of former officials and opposition leaders on foreign soil. Rwanda is a country that has experienced great progress on social and economic development over the past decade, even as the government becomes more and more repressive. And we do discuss that phenomenon towards the end of this episode. All right, so here is my conversation with Louis Mudge, Central Africa Director of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I mean, I think, I think it's defined more about a, a period of time that we, in which we, we don't know what happened. What we know is that Paul Rusisipagaina um, 
flew to Dubai from his home in Texas. He's a Belgian citizen, but he, he lives in Texas on a green card. Um, he flew uh, there landing uh, on August 27th. We know that, you know, we know based on statements from UAE officials to, to international media, albeit anonymous officials, but we think it's probably true. We know that he left the UAE roughly five hours after he landed. Uh, he left Dubai and he was taken to Kigali. Now, he wasn't presented uh, in Kigali as someone having just been arrested until August 31st. So there's a big gap. And we have no idea where he was from the 27th to the 31st, um, which is very concerning for us. Um, since he's arrived in Kigali, he, he arrived originally, uh, the Rwandans were announcing he arrived as a, some, someone sort of recently arrested with, quote unquote, international cooperation. They were very vague on that. That's not the first time they, they used the, sort of these vagaries. Um, and, then, and then he was um, subsequently uh, charged with um, multiple counts, uh, pretty serious counts, um, uh, you know, terrorism, attacks against Rwandans, uh, supporting a terrorist group, um, et cetera. Um, so pretty serious charges against him. Then there was this um, sort of surreal... Um, Back and forth between the official Rwanda version and, and, and us trying to piece things together with his family and with people who his family have appointed as lawyers. He uh, eventually was given two lawyers in Rwanda. But just till now, we're not sure who these lawyers actually are. I've heard of one of them. The other one I'd never heard of. We don't know if these are lawyers that Paul Rusesabagaina has chosen. His family has appointed a team of lawyers um, comp comprised of both international and nationals. Um, but to date, those lawyers have not had access to him. They haven't been able to either access him in Rwanda or on the phone. Um, the family has spoken to him once, but it was in the presence of these lawyers. Um, and we know uh, that he was he received some degree of a visit from, from the consular uh, office um, but we're not sure. The Belgian that, consular the Belgian, office, I would yeah, presume. Exactly, yeah. exactly, because he's a Belgian citizen. Um, but we're not sure if, if that was a private meeting. Um, and so there's still a lot of questions about this. Now, in the meantime, before he, he was given a lawyer, uh, before he was seen by uh, consular officers, he gave this exclusive interview to a newspaper called The East African. This is a regional newspaper. It's Kenya-based. Um, it is... It is it is sort of broadly broadly considered a, a independent um, paper, and it does have a a, a Kigali stringer uh, who's 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 a pretty good uh, journalist, a, a man by the name of Ivan Mugisha. Um, and Ivan Mugisha from the East African was given this exclusive interview with him, um, and he went and met with uh, Rusisa Begaina and did this interview. Um, but that in of itself was strange as well because he was very sort of kg on responding to some of the questions he wouldn't explain how he got to rwanda he um didn't want to talk about the trial but he went at lengths to say he's being treated very well he's getting mm. food he's seen doctors um Begain is a cancer he had cancer a number of years ago so there's concerns and he has hypertension so there's concerns about his health and he went at great lengths to say that he he was being treated well mm -hmm. um and 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 frankly, not only do we do we find suspicious the fact that he gave this exclusive interview just at the moment when international pressure was really mounting uh, with regards to how he was being treated, 
Um, but the fact, the fact that he went at great lengths to say how well he was being treated, but didn't actually want to discuss how he arrived in Kigali, leads us to suspect that that this might have been a prepared, these might have been a prepared statements. Um, and this isn't the first time that um, suspects, um, politically sensitive cases, suspects in these types of cases have, have sort of been presented to the media or to journalists and kind of given prepared um, answers. So, so uh, I, I guess two things. One, do we know why he was flying from Texas to Dubai? We don't. We don't. And I, I, we don't know why he was flying from Texas to Dubai. And, and, uh, and we know he hasn't traveled in a while. And this was the first trip he had taken in a while because he was concerned about COVID. What do you suspect happened in Dubai in those five hours in Dubai? Somehow, you know, he was last seen in the big international airport in Dubai. Uh, and then he shows up in, in Kigali. Like, what do you think happened? Well, he was in the airport, but we don't know where he was because he flew to Kigali on a private jet. Um, this this is, we know. Th- th- there have been like flight records that have been revealed suggesting absolutely. that like a uh, Rwanda a jet typically used by Rwandan government officials was used yep. to spirit him yep. from Dubai to Kigali. Exactly. And this is a company called Gainjet. Um, and they um, serve a lot for President Kagame. Uh, and they, 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 he rents planes from them often, uh, you know, multiple times as recently as 2020. Um, and, and, you know, we, we know that he was put on this private jet. Um, we don't know the circumstances of how he was put on it. Um, the UAE has been, has been very quiet on this only sort of just saying, uh, look, he got here officially, he left officially. And that's all we're going to say. Um, so, so we don't know if he went to a hotel um, we know that he last contacted his family when he had landed um, and sort of gave some, I mean, seemingly normal uh, messages about, look, look, I've just arrived and I'll catch up with you later. Um, and then the la- and that was the last the family ever heard of them. So there's a lot of questions. We don't know how he was either um, tricked onto this plane or um, brought onto this plane. Um, but from the conversations we've had with his family, um, they are um, adamant that he did not willingly get on a flight to Kigali. And, and a lot of this has been confirmed um, very recently by President Kagame and things he's been saying publicly. He's basically alluding to the fact um, that he, he may have been tricked onto an airplane. So there's a chance that Rusa Sabegaina was getting involved in something that he, he did not know. He obviously mm-hmm. you know, wasn't aware of. So you know the government of rwanda has a sordid history of um you know acting abroad against people it perceives as dissidents or or threats can you just describe rusesabagina's like political activities uh, uh that he's you know been engaged in from texas or or from belgium since in exile because he's emerged as an opponent a vocal opponent of the kagame government yeah he he really has so so you know i think for a lot of folks listening, the the sort of narrative around Rusisipagena might end with the the movie with Hotel Rwanda. Um, you know, there's 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 that event in of itself. I I, I think you know, and I, I obviously wasn't in Rwanda in 1994, but from folks I've spoken to, that event was very much presented as a sort of clear cut Hollywood drama. Um, the most sort of unbiased folks I've spoken to have said, look. This guy saved lives. Yes, it's not as crystal clear as what happened, but yes, broadly speaking, he did um, some good things in, during the genocide. And you know, I'm not trying to belittle some good things, you know, saving lives. Um, he then 
very quickly um, started falling out with the government after 94. Um, Paul Kagame wasn't officially elected as president in Rwanda until um, 2002, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but um, but um, Rusesa Begaina and Kagame really started to fall out quite quickly afterwards. Rusesa Begaina moved to, to Belgium where he became a citizen in 96. Um, but but not long after he actually moved to the States um, and became a resident there. Um, and, and some of that, he says, is because of um, Rwanda's very wide reach uh, with regards to tracking down um, people who were uh, against um, the government or the ruling party. Um, in the years, sort of the mid-2000s on, he became um, he, he did become more pronounced in his opposition um, to the, the president Kagame and the ruling RPF party. Um, and, and that came to the point in 2018 when Rusisa Begaina um, openly pledged his support uh, to um, an opposition party um, called the MRCD uh, and the armed wing of this opposition party known as the um, National uh, the Front for National Liberation or the FLN, um, the National Liberation Front, excuse me, or the FLN. And, um, and this, this, this FLN um, is, is an armed group. I mean, and, and this is where things get kind of um, gray and murky in the narrative of Paul Rispigaina with regards to sort of recent events, um, mm. because he very, very clearly and openly pledges his support to this armed group. Um, and this is an armed group that has carried out recent attacks in Rwanda, um, in the South around an area known as the Nungwe forest. And in these attacks, um, civilians have been killed. So, so this is, um, this is certainly, um, not the type of, um, certainly not the type of sort of endorsement you would expect from someone that you would classify as a human rights defender. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it does make things um, more complicated in that regard with regards to a sort of clear-cut narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it doesn't justify the enforced disappearance of someone for their uh, political views and for supporting an armed group. But still, it's uh, sort of worth pointing out that he you know, did not support nonviolence. He supported the armed overthrow of the Kagame government. Yeah, he, he, he said that he said that that opponents of Kagame should use every means at their disposal, uh, which certainly um, and, and he supported an armed group. Um, so this is, as you say, this um, does not justify, um, you know, it, it does not allow for this free reign um, of, of sort of um, illegal activities by which they um, got him to Rwanda and, and the time he spent um in, incommunicado. Um, but these are serious charges, um, and, um, they are not completely unfounded. Mm -hmm. Um, and presumably, you know, you could go the legal route, which is to request these person's extra extradition for trial in your country, but they opted not to go that route. Um, and I guess what really raised my eyebrows and caught my attention about this story is that, you know, this incident is yet another incident in which the government of Rwanda is 
pursuing retribution against its perceived enemies abroad. And there have been a number of these cases in recent years. Paul Rusesa Begayina is the you know most high profile of them because of, of the film. Uh, but there have been other instances in which opponents of the regime have been, frankly, murdered abroad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be clear, the Rwandan government, um, through its ju- justice ministry, absolutely has the capacity um, and the know-how and the people um, to um, make a formal extradition request and to get that request granted. And a number of countries have been sending people back to Rwanda, especially people accused of committing genocide, um, over the last few years. Um, When the government of Rwanda does not feel that those requests are going to be granted um, because a judge in an independent country might gauge that the individual does not stand a fair, stand a fair, fair trial, then they're absolutely, um, they're absolutely ready to use unlawful means of getting that individual back. And, and as you say, uh, the Respegina case is just the latest iteration of a long-standing pattern and policy of the government of Rwanda to put pressure on and in some cases assassinate political dissidents. Um, there's been a number of these cases um, the most high-profile um, assassination uh, to date, I would say, would be in uh, 2014 of an individual named Patrick Karagea, who really was regarded as as one of the the, the intelligence insiders um, of uh, of both the government and of the RPF um, for a number of years since they took power in 1994. Um, he was assassinated in a hotel room in uh, in Pretoria. Um, and just a few years before in that, South Africa. Was, in South Africa, yeah. Mm-hmm. And before that, there was a um, uh, an attempt on a very high-ranking member, former chief of staff of the army, high-ranking member of the party named Kayumba Nyamwasa, um, again in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and investigations by the South Africans um, have been have been really interesting to follow, and and they you know they continue just up until now. Um, and these investigations really openly point to the government of Rwanda having been responsible for carrying out these, either these hits or these, these attempted hits. Um, and, and, you know, you, you have this in sort of court documents, prosecutorial investigations, judges confirming it. Um, and, and I think what's most striking is that the Rwandans continue to do this. They continue to, even though this is, this is not a secret, this is happening in, you know, out in the open that they're doing this, um, they're, they're enacting this repression across other borders. Um, it, it just continues. Um, so, so Rusisa Begaina is the latest iteration. Um, the question remains if they will continue, because maybe with this case being so high profile, uh, there's a sense that maybe Kagame has gone too far, and maybe um, uh, they'll they'll begin to rein in this practice because um, the, the the attention will be too much. Well, you know, as you alluded, I mean, it takes just like a almost like a degree of like chutzpah to, to be able to think that you could get away with attacking and killing and, you know, secretly rendering opponents abroad. Um, if you are the government of Rwanda, like what makes them think they could get away with this because without to, like international approbation? Yeah. Because to date they, the, the government of Rwanda has not been held accountable for this. Um, you know, in 1998, uh, a former minister, uh, interior minister named Sendashonga. He was a Hutu. He was RPF through and through. He joined the RPF well before 1994. He did not like what was happening. 
post-94 in Rwanda. He was assassinated in Kenya um, in the streets of Nairobi. And, you know, that, I, I think, opened up the floodgates uh, for the RPF and Kagame when they realized they were not going to be held seriously accountable. You know, small diplomatic slaps on the wrist, um, but they're not going to be held seriously accountable for these acts. That's continued until day. I mean, this is a policy of this government because they haven't been held accountable. Now, there's been other instances in which Rwanda has overreached. And I think uh, one to bring up is 2012 when it was supporting an armed group in the Democratic Republic of the Congo known as M23. Um, And they were supporting them up to the point where they were very openly um, driving munitions across the border. I was living in Rwanda at the time and helping to document this. They were recruiting children for M23 from Rwandan camps. Um, They were driving ammunition across the border. Rwandan soldiers were participating in the offensives. And in that case, it became it was a bridge too far for the for the wider international community, especially the partners on which Rwanda relies so much. And those people did take those those states rather did take action. And that that was a real wake up call. And Rwanda very quickly stopped what they were doing uh, vis-a-vis the support to M23. So Rwanda certainly is susceptible to the ebbs and flows of diplomacy and pressure. It's just that to date. With regards to these assassinations or these attempted assassinations or these threats or these enforced disappearances that occur on, in other countries, there just isn't – there. states are not holding Rwanda accountable. I mean, is part of the reason that states aren't holding Rwanda accountable for this just because Rwanda has, you know, objectively speaking, been a remarkable global development story, that standards of living in Rwanda are raising and and are rising very quickly. You know, I think it's on pace to almost become a middle-income country at some point soon. And it has, you know, part of the sort of authoritarian regime of Paul Kagame has, you know, undoubtedly resulted in just profound um, advances in standards of living and in the social and economic development of Rwanda. I mean, there is like a good news story to tell about Rwanda that some of these governments want to push. There absolutely is a good news story to tell that these governments want to push. Um, And it's all the more striking in so much as that, you know, this, this country has sort of literally risen from the ashes uh, of a genocide in which the the international community really took a back seat and allowed things to happen. Um, And there are um, both major states like the U.S. and the and the U.K. and major players like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, for example, um, who who really want to see this happen, um, and and if that comes at the price of um, quite a substantial degree of authoritarianism, then so be it. Um, you know, a, a, when you don't have an independent press and you don't have independent fact finding. The numbers are massaged and the economic numbers and the social, you know, the socioeconomic numbers out of Rwanda and the development numbers are definitely massaged to make the government and to make Paul Kagame look better. However, um, broadly, things are and objectively things are better. And I, I lived there for a number of years and I can say that, yes, you know, a lot of these policies, um, these socioeconomic policies do bear some fruit. Corruption comparatively is quite low when you compare to other countries. Um, you know, an investor like a USAID or a DFID from the UK, you know, these these large aid agencies are going to get a good return on their tax dollars that, that their citizens are paying into um, with investment in development projects in Rwanda. So there is a real desire uh, to see Rwanda work um, and, and, and a real desire to sort of 
in, by, from many states, use this as the sort of textbook example as to what should happen in other countries. Um, and so having things like, uh, you know, Paul Rasisabagaina, who gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom, all of a sudden sort of be, you know, in, you know illegally, unlawfully brought to Rwanda, um, challenges that narrative. So, you know, you can, you can anticipate some degree of, of um, finger wagging in this case. But I wouldn't be surprised um, to, to, to see this quietly go away. And the U.S. has already come out. The U.S. has already come out through the State Department and said, well, you know, we're concerned about it, but we expect he's going to get a fair trial. Um, so that's already in a way condoning um, the, uh, the, the means by which he was brought to the country. That's disappointing. It is disappointing. I mean, this administration hasn't shown uh, the this U.S. administration has not shown a a huge interest in Rwanda in particular. So it's not necessarily surprising. Um, But uh, the U.S., um, the U.S., you know, they want to see Rwanda work. Um, They see it as a, a bastion of stability in an otherwise unstable neighborhood. Uh, you have Burundi to the south. You've got Congo um, on its other border. You've got um, you've got Museveni who's running into some real problems to the north, um, and you've got authoritarian Magafule in Tanzania um, to the east. And so they 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 seriously consider Rwanda to be a real stable pocket in otherwise um, unstable area. And, and come hell or high water, they want to make it work. Uh, well, Lewis, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful, if distressing. Well, thanks a lot. It's always interesting to talk about Rwanda, even in the uh, even in the times in which uh, a case like this reinforces um, the degree of authoritarianism in the country. Um, it's it's always good to know that folks are listening. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Lewis Mudge. And I'll post a link to the report from Human Rights Watch on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.